and I feel like I want to begin this morning with kind of a disclaimer. Will you give me an opportunity to give you a disclaimer? The sermon that I've prepared uh, this morning is a little bit different from the sermons that I usually prepare in style. And the reason that I want to give that disclaimer and that warning is that you'll see on, on your bulletin my usual outline. Uh, and there will, of course, be the, the, the slides on the PowerPoint. And if you choose to do so, the little fill in the blank on the outline. But the way I've constructed this morning's sermon is that those outline points aren't really outline points so much as they are landing points. And so they're going to take place for the most part in the conclusion of the matter, which means I'm going to talk for a really long time before you see anything on the screen that requires your attention should you be taking notes. And I don't want you to be sitting there thinking, oh my word, this guy won't shut up. This sermon is going to be three hours long. He hasn't even gotten to point number one yet. I, I just wanna, I wanna address that, recognize that, and assure you that I have no intention to speak even a minute longer than my usual two hours. So we are, we, we are solid here, we are, we are good with that. The reason that I've put a sermon together oh, just a little bit different in its style today is that in this next paragraph of the Colossian letter, we are wading into some very deep water. We are wading into some very deep water. And I just think it deserves some, some very precise attention. And I think you'll see what I mean as we get there together. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, I don't know, buckle up. Uh, <laughs> there, <laughs> there we are. I'm glad you're here. But know that we've been on this, this journey of Bible study together for several months, just taking this Colossian letter just a few lines at a time and really chewing on it. Where we've been is that we've heard now for many months, this is actually the 14th sermon I've preached from the book of Colossians. So for, for many months, we've been tracking with Paul as he writes to this church and he's describing for them uh, what we would call the discipleship journey. It's the process of growing up in our faith. And he started with some very broad, very esoteric, very lofty thoughts. He talked about the meaning of the crucifixion of Christ. He talked about a lot of the theology that goes behind what we believe. Uh, but over the course of the last few weeks, I think we've heard Paul begin to kind of focus in and put a much finer point, a much more practical application to some of the thoughts that he's shared. And again, he's thinking over and over about what it means to grow up. It's one thing to receive the gospel message, as many of the Colossians had, with great joy and great enthusiasm, but we soon learn, oh, this is gonna be a journey. It's gonna require some maturity for me to actually move ahead in my faith. Coming to Christ isn't the end of a spiritual journey, it's the beginning of a spiritual journey. And that's kind of that turning point that, that, that Paul is dealing with here. In the last few lines that we read two weeks ago when I last had the opportunity to share with you, Paul was offering a very specific challenge to those who would 
purpose to develop some spiritual maturity. He said, you know, I think a lot of times we think of spiritual maturity as uh, how much Bible do I know? How many hours did I spend in prayer this week? How many small groups do I attend? And how many classes have I taken or maybe even taught? That's the mark of what it is to be a mature believer in our minds sometime. But Paul has offered this challenge. He said, instead of thinking about things like that, whatever those things might have been in his context, he said, try this on for size. You want to consider yourself spiritually mature? He said, start by paying attention to the way we treat each other. The way we treat each other matters. And he offered some key words. He used words like tenderhearted mercy, words like kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. But he said the most important one, the one that covers all of those things up is love. And he wrapped it all up with this statement that you see on the screens. This is the final verse that we read together two weeks ago, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. It's a good reminder at this point before we, we launch into these deeper waters. Paul says, and whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do or say, whatever it is that you're up to in this life, do it as a representative of Jesus. And that instruction, I think, begs an interesting question. What impact would it have on my life if I engaged every circumstance as if I was there solely as a representative of Jesus? In every situation, in every circumstance, in every instance, no matter what, what if I just framed every moment of my life as I am here representing Jesus? In other words, what if instead of the other roles that I play in my life, what if instead of playing the role of husband, instead of playing the role of parent or, or friend or, or boss, what if instead of even playing the role of pastor of the church, what if I decided not to do any of those things, but instead said, I'm just going to play the role of Jesus's representative? How would that impact my family? How would that impact my relationships? How might that transform my career? How might that change my viewpoints on politics or economics or social issues of the day? How might all of those things be changed if in any circumstance my only concern was what can I do here to represent Jesus? I think those are interesting and provocative questions. And in the passage that we're going to read next, Paul provides us with some very plausible answers to those what-if questions. You can follow along, beginning in Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. 
Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done because God has no favorites. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master. He's in heaven. The words that I just read have caused more than a few Christians to scratch their heads and adjust their collars through the years. They have been read and they have been reread many, many times in many, many different places. They have been proclaimed and pronounced and in my experience, almost always on their own, completely out of context of the rest of the letter. And the problem with that, the problem with just reading them as I just did, completely on their own, without the context of the rest of the letter, is that on their own, they sound like a list of commandments, don't they? They sound like a, a bullet point list that essentially says, thou shalt or thou shalt not. For example, it sounds like what God is saying here is that a wife should always do what her husband tells her to do. It sounds like God is saying here that slaves should always work hard and obey their masters because that's just the rules. Them's the rules, folks. In the 19th century American South, this precise passage was drilled into black slaves as a way of brainwashing them into believing that any attempt to gain their freedom would bring God's wrath. The Bible says you have to obey the master as if he was Jesus himself. And in similar ways, this passage and others like it have been used to promote misogyny and the systemic subjugation of women. We say, ma'am, if you want to honor God, you must stand at his altar and take a vow to always obey your husband. Whatever he wants, do it, because that's what the Bible says. We say, ma'am, the Bible says that you were just created differently and you lack the ability to lead. There is a ceiling on your potential to grow up spiritually. So don't even bother to speak up, don't ask questions, and most importantly, don't bother the men while they do the important work of religion. And if that's what we think these verses mean, most of us, let's be honest here, just wish they weren't in the Bible. We avoid the passage because it makes us uncomfortable. Why does God say women have to obey men? Why doesn't God give any rights to kids? Why doesn't God actually speak out against slavery? If you've ever felt that way about this passage or any others like it that you've read in the Bible, then today I'm going to invite you to reconsider it in light of what Paul has been trying to say to us the entire time. Dare to hope about what I've told you before from this pulpit, about the Bible's most difficult passages. The truth is always more wonderful than we could have imagined. Because I believe that something very different is going on here, and it's tremendously exciting. 
But in order to discover it, I think we need to remind ourselves about who was hearing the words of this letter for the first time. We need to remind ourselves about what life was like in ancient Colossae. We talked about this through the weeks, but I'm going to remind you now that Colossae, the city where this church, where this letter arrived and was read to the believers, was a city in the ancient Roman Empire. It wasn't Rome, but it was a Roman city. It was a Roman city. And in Rome, it was good to be a man. In Rome, it was especially good to be a free man. In Rome, free men took young wives. And in most cases, the wife's primary job was to provide the man with children who could be his heirs. Now, there were certainly some places in the Roman Empire that had more progressive views on women's rights than others. But even in those places, life was not like what we might imagine it to be today. Even if in the particular city where you were, a woman could be a business owner, as was the case in some places in Rome, even if that was the case, she still didn't have the rights of citizenship. She still would not have been allowed to testify in court because everybody knows women can't be trusted. She still had no rights or authority over property of her own. Women weren't their own people. They were beholden almost entirely to their husbands or their fathers. In Rome, free men owned slaves. And the slaves' roles were to manage the man's household and to provide whatever he wanted in the workplace, on his property, in the kitchen, and even in his bedroom. Slaves existed for the man's comfort and for the man's pleasure. In Rome, men might have children by many different women, certainly their wives, but also their mistresses, and by their slaves. And most Roman men had the right to choose which of their children they would raise in their household as a member of their family, and which of their other children they would relegate to the role of slave to serve them on their property. And the children had nothing to say about it. In Rome, in many cases, even as adults, adult children were expected to do whatever their parents told them to do without questioning it. So we have here a world filled with men who have unquestioned power over their wives, over their slaves, and over their kids. And they could make them do whatever they wanted without consideration for their welfare to say nothing of what was best for them. And now in the early church, in Colossae in particular, in this instance, the challenge is that all of these different kinds of people, men, women, husbands, wives, kids, slave owners, slaves, are hearing the gospel and beginning to turn to Jesus. How do we handle that? What do we do with that? What happens when the power of the kingdom of God breaks out in places that are already defined by worldly systems of power and oppression? What do we do with that? Well, I think if it was up to me, 
And I would hazard to guess that if it was up to most of us, we would probably ask God to just make it simple and straightforward. This is a passage of scripture that seems to be crying out for a few well-placed thou shalt nots, right? God, why don't you just include in scripture at this point, thou shalt not consider your wife to be a piece of property. Thou shalt not oppress your children and deprive them of a full life. Thou shalt not relegate any human being to the role of slave. Wouldn't that handle the problem? Wouldn't that be a lot cleaner and nicer and easier for all of us? We could pray and go home and just be done with church for today. Wouldn't that be better? And yet that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say any of those things. And he leaves us 2,000 years later... I think just sorely wishing that he would have. But I think Paul sees something that we don't always see. He doesn't use rules as a way of forcing change in behavior. He understands that rules are limited in their ability to transform. I want to just remind you for a moment, we actually already encountered that principle a few weeks back when Paul was addressing the issue of religious disciplines. He said a lot of you guys undergo different disciplines to try and change and transform your life, and in some cases that's okay, in some cases it's crazy. But no matter what, do you remember when we talked about this? Paul helped us identify disciplines, religious exercises are limited in their ability to actually affect change in your life. Rules don't change hearts. Do we hear that? Mm -hmm. Rules don't change hearts. And the gospel isn't about following the rules. The gospel is about changing hearts. And so Paul says, I'm not gonna deal with this, I'm not gonna address this with a bunch of rules there is another way. Church, growing up requires to break down. It requires us to break down. I'm going to use a different word here. Growing up requires us to deconstruct systems of worldly power that define life in a sinful world. But rules can't do that. Rules can't do that. The Bible tells us again and again that even God's law as perfect as it was, as good as it was, was incapable of bringing life. When it comes to dismantling evil systems in this world, rules can't accomplish what Jesus came to accomplish. Only the kingdom of God can do that. And so that's where I wanna land today. I'm gonna say this and you'll see it on the screen. Kingdom principles disrupt worldly power. Kingdom principles disrupt worldly power. They don't erase worldly power, not in this life at least. They don't make worldly power disappear. They don't make it impossible to function or to exist, but give it time and kingdom principles without fail will disrupt worldly power. At my house, there had been a path from our driveway to our front door, a path that had been there since long before we owned the house, made of flagstone. 
And along the side of the path, there were planted some bushes that through the years had become very overgrown. And, and we had planted tulips along the side of, of the path. And last summer, as this flagstone was just crumbling again, and it really at that point was hardly anything more than gravel, the bushes were an eyesore. It was old, it was hard to keep clean, it was t just terrible. Sue and I decided we're gonna, we're gonna take it up. And it was a project that I decided to take on for myself. So I, I got the flagstone up out of the ground. Um, I dug up those bushes by the roots. Oh my goodness, that was a hard job. I dug up all the old tulip bulbs, got them out of the ground, and then I dug a pit, a rectangular pit where this path used to be. And I ordered the supplies, I ordered uh, about two tons of gravel and laid the gravel down into the bottom of the pit. I had a hand tamper and I pounded that gravel flat into that pit. And then I ordered about a ton and a half of leveling sand that laid down over, over the gravel and again went through and just pounded that sand down so it was flat and hard like concrete. And then I ordered pavers that were delivered to our house, brick pavers, again, well more than a ton of brick, and, and laid the brick down in, in the rectangular area there uh, and made a patio where this path used to be in front of our front porch. Once the brick was down, I poured uh, joint sand into the, the creases, into the joints in between the brick. It looks like sand, but it hardened like cement so that those, those brick pavers wouldn't move. And when that was done, I poured a sealant over the entire thing so that water would not seep down into the cracks. And so when I'm done with this entire project, we now have a, it sounds big, right? But it's, it's no bigger than this, this little portion of the platform. It, it, but there's about 10,000 pounds, literally. 10,000 pounds of gravel and sand and brick and cement in this little tiny area that has been placed down and it has been pounded, pounded with all the strength I have, which, check this out. I mean, this isn't bad, right? Like, this is pretty good. I mean, I know I grew up a musician, but I know how to pound dirt. I knew how to pound dirt. I was there like praying for my church family. God bless Garrett. <laughs> oh. It was like I didn't need therapy for months when that was over. That was awesome. I did, I, I did all of that work. 10,000 pounds of material in that little area, beaten into the ground. Last night, I'm pulling in the driveway in my car, and I look out in the lawn. We've had all this rain the last couple of days. And I see right at the edge of that patio, I missed a few tulip bulbs. <laughs> and there's a few that are growing up a couple feet away from the patio. But right by the edge of the patio, there's this little tender shoot of tulip. This little small frail stem that you would think would be no match for 10,000 pounds of rock. But there it is, growing up through the gravel, through the sand, and then just reaching its way around the brick. Life is breaking through. Do you remember the, the Jeff Goldblum character in the original Jurassic Park movie? Life uh, finds a way, right? <laughs> that, did you enjoy that? <laughs> I got another one for you, apartments.com. No. <laughs> 
life finds a way. That's my patio. And tulips, we love tulips. That's Sue's favorite flower. And they're gonna ruin my patio. (laughs) They're gonna ruin my patio. That's the way the kingdom of God works against the power structures in this world. It might seem like no match for what the enemy has beaten down into our sinful lives, but look closely and you will see places where the kingdom has taken root. Give it time, let it grow, and it will even begin to split rock. It will begin to upend and disrupt and destroy the foundations of evil in our lives. And even when we can't see it, even in the winters of our lives, when those tulip bulbs are dormant, they're down there, sending out roots, sending out feelers, growing in unseen ways. And come springtime, that foundation of evil, it's gonna have a reckoning. Even when we can't see it, the kingdom is disrupting the systems of power in this fallen world. And what that means is that you might find yourself planted into kingdom of God, but you still feel crushed by the powers of this world. You may very well already be subject to his kingdom, but not yet free from the systems of this one. And if that's you, Paul has encouragement for you today, and it's this. You can serve the Lord, and you can grow up right where you are now. Slave, you can grow up in the Lord right where you are right now. Child, you can grow up right where you are now. Wife, you can grow up right where you are right now. Your circumstances are not standing in the way of the kingdom. The kingdom is ready to upend your circumstances. So while we're living in that in-between reality, we need to remember two very simple principles, and they might sound counterintuitive, but that's the way the kingdom works, right? That's the way the kingdom works. They are the very things that cause the kingdom to break through worldly systems of power and oppression. The first one is this, Those with authority should be honored. Those with authority should be honored. Paul doesn't ask Christian wives to make value judgments about their husbands in deciding how to respond to them. He doesn't say honor your husbands as long as they are acting honorably. He doesn't ask them to make value judgments about how good or how evil the system is. He just says what he says. He doesn't ask children to evaluate their parents' wisdom when determining whether or not they're going to obey. And perhaps most painfully, he doesn't tell the slave that the way to freedom is to revolt against the master. Instead, he says, verse 22, serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. I believe what he's in essence saying to all of us, no matter what our circumstance here is that you may feel the weight of injustice and oppression in your life, but the path to freedom is not in force, aggression, or worldly strength. You do not break a foundation by burying a rock underneath it. You break a foundation by planting a tulip under it. Choose to be the tender flower shoot that grows up through that foundation. You might not see it right away, but trust that your mere presence is dismantling the rock of oppression. Your existence is precisely what's going to cause evil to crumble.
Many of us have exactly that opportunity. Because of our circumstances in life, we exist in evil, oppressive systems. And if that's you today, awaken to the reality that you can disrupt and you can dismantle, but not by leading violent rebellion, simply by living as a representative of Jesus Christ. Can you identify worldly systems of power in your home? Are you living under an authority that is less than godly? Resist the temptation to preach. Instead, just live out the gospel because that disrupts worldly power. Are you dissatisfied in your workplace? Are you the victim of injustice in the marketplace? Be like Joseph in Egypt, determined to seek the blessing and the favor of your employer. Are you frustrated with the direction of our nation? Do you recognize an increase of evil in our land? Let's worry less about wielding political authority in order to change the laws and concentrate more on using godly authority to simply live by his laws. Now, of course, we aren't always the victims. We have to acknowledge that sometimes we arrive in the kingdom of God only to discover that we have been the beneficiaries of worldly systems of power. What do we do then? Well, Paul says, here's the other side of the coin. Those under authority should flourish. Those under, you can put the word your in there. Those under your authority should flourish. He says, masters, be just and fair. Fathers, don't aggravate your kids. Husbands, love your wives. He qualifies it this way. Never treat them harshly. Live as an example of Christ's love in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. And if the systems of this world have given you authority, influence, or power, then your first impulse needs to be to wield that power for the benefit of those under your authority. Their lives should flourish because of your godly presence in them. But I think it's worth remembering that even if you believe yourself to be good, even if you believe yourself to be kind or even godly, there could very well be a disruption coming. You may find that even if you have the best of intentions, status-based power just cannot exist in the kingdom of God. It's going to crumble. It's going to crumble. I want to close with one final picture of the church in Colossae. Historians will tell us that what most likely happened is that when Paul finished writing this letter, he handed it to his colleague Epaphras. And he said, Epaphras, I want you to take this letter to Colossae. Uh, the churches there would probably have gathered in a variety of different homes, like what we call small groups. But he says, when you get to Colossae, call them all together and say, I have a letter from Paul. I'd like you all gather so I could read it to you all publicly, all at once. And so Epaphras and his traveling crew would have arrived in Colossae and they would have gotten word out to all the churches. Hey, there's a letter here from Paul. We need you all to hear it. And so come together this Saturday at 2.30. We'll have some snacks and we'll listen to Paul's letter. And when everybody got together, Epaphras would have stood up in front of somebody who would have taken out of his, his scroll and he would have read through what we call the book of Colossians. He would have read through the entire letter in front of the entire church. And when he got to this point, he would have continued reading as in that room or in that place, brand new Christian 
husbands and wives looked nervously across the room. Brand new Christian kids who were trying to figure out how to serve God in a home with ungodly parents were to look down at their feet. And brand new Christian slaves sitting right across the way from their masters would have tried to avoid eye contact as they thought, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with this? And when Epaphras got to the end of his letter and gave all the greetings, he then would have said to them, hey, before anybody goes anywhere, I actually have one other letter that I need to read. Um, Paul wrote a personal letter to one member of this church, but he asked me, historians would tell us, almost certainly, he asked me to read it in front of you all. And so Philemon, would you just listen to what Paul had to say specifically to you? Church, if you flip over in your Bible a couple of pages, you can read the letter that Paul sent to Philemon. But I'm going to tell you right now what it says. In front of the entire church family, Epaphras would have pulled out a smaller scroll, and he would have opened it up, and he would have said, Dear Philemon, you're a slave owner. And a couple of months ago, one of your slaves ran away. And he found me while I was in jail. And I led him to the Lord. And then he asked me what he's supposed to do as a Christian in this new life. And I told him exactly what I just wrote in the other letter. That he's supposed to serve his master as best he knows how. And so to his surprise and his dismay, I told him what he needs to do is come home and reconcile with you. And so when you're done reading my letter, go outside because with Epaphras, your slave Onesimus is waiting to come home. But I want to give you some instructions before you find Onesimus. Because I know the law says that you could beat him, you could kill him, you could do pretty much whatever you want to do with him. He broke the law when he ran away from you. He stole from you. He disrupted your economy and your household system. I know you have the right to do whatever you want to do. But here... Before you go meet with him, in front of your entire church family, I want to give you some instruction. Onesimus isn't your slave anymore. He's your brother. Treat him like that. The end. I want you to imagine what that must have sounded like in that room. Philemon is standing right there. You know who else is standing there? Probably a few other slaves that finally know. Do you think maybe, just maybe, there was revival among the slaves in Colossae that morning? <laughs> the kingdom was breaking forth. And it didn't take a rule. It didn't take a thou shalt not. It took a transformed heart. It took a new understanding. The gospel didn't break through because somebody read a new rule in their Bible that explained to them, you just can't do that anymore. The gospel broke through because godly people grew up and discovered that there was a different way of living. 
Now, history and the Bible are silent as to what actually happened. We don't know what actually happened in the hours following the reading of that letter, in the days, in the weeks, in the months, or the years following the reading of that letter. Would you imagine with me what might have happened? I have trouble believing that anything other than kingdom happened. I have trouble believing that the good, honest people of Colossae who desired to serve Jesus with all their hearts could do anything other than recognize we can't go on this way. We can't go on this way. We need a new way. We need a kingdom way. And my prayer for us as we grow up in the Lord is that we would discover the same thing. Can we pray? Father, there is something in our bellies that understands in a way that we usually can't even articulate that there is another way. And as fallen, broken human beings, I think too often our impulse has been to look for the rules. Which rules are going to help us discover this other way, this godly way? What am I allowed to do and what am I not allowed to do? And for us today, growing up involves the recognition that rules like that are insufficient. The best they can do is vaguely point us in the direction of another reality. God, we are a New Testament spirit-filled people. We do not want vague pointing. We want breakthrough. Show us another way. Lord, our, our hearts break one for another today. Because I know that in this room there are people living in houses that are ruled by ungodly, evil systems of power. Show us another way. Some of us are victims of that power. Some of us, in ways that we haven't recognized, are perpetrators of that power. Show us another way. Lord, there are parents in this room and there are children in this room who earnestly desire to know how to relate one to another according to a kingdom that we can't yet see. Show us another way. Lord, we live in a nation that has changed the laws about slavery. Far too late but a long time ago, nonetheless. And yet, we still don't know how to get along with each other. We still don't know how to recognize the value of life in the other. God, the law hasn't helped us figure that out. Only the kingdom can do that. Show us another way. 
our prayer one for another today is that the kingdom would break through. Even when we can't see it, Lord, would you remind us of the tender shoots of kingdom that are uprooting, disrupting, and crumbling the foundations of evil that we know too well. Even when we can't see it, Lord, would you surprise us with kingdom hope that you are doing a new thing, that you are doing a different thing. And Lord, we want to pray a bold, bold prayer today. God, make us that people. God, with holy boldness, we say today, make us that people. Make us be the people that know how to subversively submit. Make us the people that know how to deconstruct evil by our mere presence as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make us the people that can be the sign to a lost world saying there is another way. We pray that you would accomplish this for your purposes. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray, amen. Church, get out your towels. We waded through deep waters. It's time to dry off. May God's blessing be upon you today. If you have any questions for us, bring them. Pray for that uh, ministry team. Pray for us all as we leave Wednesday morning. Be blessed. Greet each other today. God bless you.